0: Hello, and welcome to Around the Table, a podcast about food stories from science to everyday life. Hey everyone, um, welcome to our episode of Lockdown Food, which is Stanley and I in conversation about some of the things we've learned through our interview process. Hi, Stanley.
1: Hi, Seth. How are you?
0: Good. How are you?
1: Very well, thank you. Very well.
0: Um, So I was just going to start with just summarizing some of the things I've noticed. I've been doing all the editing on the podcast, um, so I got a chance to really listen to everyone's interview. And... You know, initially, I think what really just stood out to me early on in lockdown is there was so much creativity emerging. Um, we talked to a few people in the restaurant industry. We also talked to several people who um, spoke about just being at home with their families and children. Um, and I think you know a few a few themes that emerged. One is sourdough. <laughs> <laughs> which i think a few people talked about as well as the whole internet <laughs> um and i think this uh it was really fascinating to me cuz it, it you know in some ways represents this very intense deep homemaking that's going on as everyone's stuck in their house but i thought that would be an interesting place to start
1: yeah yeah i think the sourdough thing was was uh, surprising in a way but probably shouldn't be surprising how important bread seems to be to so many people Um, at a time when a lot of people are saying, I shouldn't eat bread, I'm allergic to wheat, all that sort of thing. Suddenly it emerged as a very real thing for uh, a lot of people. I think Madelena Borsato talked about the nurturing aspect of it and being able to find sociality through posting um, Pictures of their their baked bread once they had it, and just the amount of care and attention that it needed, and of course, um, at a time when people did have time on their hands and turned to, you know, the creativity of cooking rather than the rushed way of of, of eating with the usual busy lives that that people usually have. And the other thing is, the um, lockdown affected all of the food industry affected all of the places where people could go and eat in restaurants for example and it meant that the food provisioning service that usually went to restaurants would find itself in 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 the mainstream so there, there's an awful lot of good food floating around looking looking for custom not in the usual way through through restaurants but uh, through through everyday people we got that through uh, um, Eden Henderson, uh, you know, chef at the River Cafe, a uh, uh, Michelin-starred place that obviously used to good ingredients, and he's been able to keep uh, uh, keep aspects of that going. So so I think, you know, that's another thing. So the creativity that emerged was uh, fantastic to see. I'm sure, Tess, you've experienced some of that firsthand.
0: Yeah, I have been. I have been making sourdough. <laughs> Have you?
1: Well, no, no, I haven't. But, you know, I interviewed uh, Alexa Alexandra, who just happens to be my daughter. And she's home now. And uh, she's brought her sourdough mix with her, her mother dough, shall we say. And she's been baking sourdough every few days. And she's asking me if I'm baking or when am I baking. And um, it's... uh, been very nice to have uh having this regular supply of very good bread every single day has been has, has been wonderful
0: yeah i think you know the other thing that just stood out to me too is that i think it was uh, heather hamill talked about a neighbor leaving a loaf of bread on her step early on in lockdown and just how that neighborly kindness really stood out to her um and i think that like this uh, this idea of um I don't know like sharing bread when we can't see each other i live alone but i've i've made bread now for my neighbors my downstairs neighbors for my parents for different people and and that kind of community aspect coming out is very interesting
1: yeah and it's added another layer to the you know, sharing of food in the physical sense and the sharing of food in a virtual sense There's this in in between step now of, of sharing food and leaving it for your neighbours, which is which is uh, um, wonderful to see, and uh, also cooking. How people have been taking to cooking in different ways. You mentioned Heather Hamill, and she she talked in her podcast about reaching to the last few cans of chickpeas at the back back of the cupboard, at the very very back of the cupboard. Things that you put in a cupboard because you think you will use them and they end up shuffling backwards and backwards and backwards until there's nowhere for them to go than to stay at the back of the cupboard until lockdown happens and they're they're rediscovered I thought that was uh, that was rang true and Giles yo when he talked about his uh, lockdown cuisine and cooking his his cooking videos and how he's really taken to to cooking at home there's a lot of Hidden talent emerging, I think, during this during this process.
0: Oh yes, definitely. It's it's kind of fascinating. One of the other themes, of course, is kind of how this has impacted the restaurant industry itself. Um, I know uh, John Bone, who owns a restaurant here, has maintained his um, his business throughout this and has actually done fairly okay, considering because it was already set up for takeout. Um, but I know other businesses are kind of hit hard and doing interesting things to, to keep up with it. But I, I'm just kind of wondering what you think about the future of this. Like, what's it going to be like now that people have learned they can cook in their houses and had this creativity emerge? Are they going to want to go back to restaurants?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I talked to, I have relatives in Chicago. You may know this. Uh, and, uh, I talked to them at the weekend, and restaurants in Chicago have been opening up to sit outside. And and they said as a family they're they're very reluctant to partake of this adventure, as they called it. So I think initially it's going to be slow because we've suddenly got into this pattern of, of stepping around people and not being too close. And we can't touch them. And there's so much more to going to a restaurant than simply having food prepared for you and having it put in front of you there's the entire sociality of of eating together which of course includes smell includes touch all sorts of things which are currently illegal in (laughs) in in the context of COVID-19 so if it's a case of not having to cook at home going to eat out well that's one aspect of it but I think for the sociality of eating out with other people, I, I think it's going to take a while to to recover. I, do, I would bet that some new hybrids will emerge that are kind of not quite eating in a restaurant, not quite a takeout, new ways of, of doing things, including... Ingredients that restaurant quality ingredients come to your house and you have the recipes and ways of doing from a restaurant. That's already happening, but I could see that becoming bigger and more mainstream. I found that the one interesting thing that emerged was around around alcohol and initially the idea of the quarantini became became <laughs> um making cocktails from what you have available to you my daughter's been making cocktails from canned fruit and anything you can get that's left over on the supermarket shelf so that's 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 interesting in a garage kind of creativity way that really is interesting uh what what do you make of it you talk to uh Lucchetti, who's a distiller i believe and you know, you talk to to, to to a distiller that's shifted their production line. And I, I should say, I talked to my daughter this morning, but as far as she can tell, all of the gin distillers in London are making stuff for, you know, for um, what do for you call hand it?
0: Hand sanitizer. That's
1: the one, hand sanitizer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of the distilleries have. I mean, I was interested to find out from Lucchetti that they. Um, you know, the FDA actually sent out a call for this. So it wasn't just the, the distilleries coming to it on their own. It was it was kind of organized. And then a lot of them turned to making hand sanitizer and that the demand is just so high. I think that's what, what shocked me. He said even the post office was calling. <laughs> and I think, but I think what's, to me, what's tricky about it is that a lot of them are just making this at cost, essentially to keep their businesses running but they're not actually making money off of it. Um, and in the meantime, their alcohol sales are down because of the restaurants. So it is a very, it, it, it's cool to see that people survive in these periods and find ways to, to kind of keep their livelihoods up. But it is, I think, scary for a lot of business owners.
1: They're running very close to the wire, that, that's for sure. The other thing that's that's emerged as a bigger category than ever was the, as you put it, the micro market of sweets, so snacks and sweets <laughs> and sugar, and uh, I think Esther Gonzalez Padilla talked about this in the in the Spanish context, and how people were snacking a lot more and um, almost inevitable they should be should be doing so, not necessarily because they're hungry but because of uh, boredom and not having the stimulation, and um, you know, she talked a little bit about how to keep a healthy diet in the face of corona in, in the face of coronavirus, and you know, I think that's something that we all struggled with.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I've been doing this study, this survey study on households um, practicing social distancing, and it's on uncertainty and well-being. But I've asked about diet and about like from my like you know I haven't fully analyzed the data but it looks like it feels like 5050 people feeling like they're either eating better or eating way worse so that kind of distinction was interesting to me as well
1: have we got any idea why it's polarizing like that
0: well I don't, you could probably say more about this i I happen to think it's probably how people deal with anxiety and stress and pe- and some people tend to eat better in order to manage that and other people tend to you know stress eat snack
1: yeah i think there's there's the the underbelly of um, economic and uh, social inequality that it's not just about the food it's about what you can see your future as being when you can't see whether you have a job at the end of it whether in fact you've got to be very very careful Heather Hamill, who I know is a very successful and uh, 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 academic yeah, at the University of Oxford, said they went through a period of, of great uncertainty because they were isolated within their household at the beginning of this. Both her and her husband were had COVID-19 and uh, they were uh, reduced to eating what was in their house and didn't know when they'd be able to Unlock or emerge. So, if they're experiencing that kind of stress, I can, I can imagine that's multiplied manyfold across uh, across society.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, I, since, since you brought this up, I think one of the things underlying my thinking through lockdown and and COVID nineteen is just how much it actually has become a disease of inequality, and we're really seeing that. Um, people with underlying health conditions are more vulnerable. And these underlying health conditions, I think, are things we've talked about a lot in our work with obesity, diabetes, um, as as being <laughs> the underlying health conditions for a lot of different diseases. Have you thought about that at all?
1: Yeah. The interesting thing is that we mostly associate obesity with chronic disease. And i been. Arguing for years now that it's really all part of the same complex that underlying both undernutrition and infection and overnutrition and chronic diseases, inflammation and in the immune system and COVID nineteen has emerged as this inflammatory disease par excellence. It really is astonishing how it operates. It you know creates a, what some people have called a cytokine storm in its more advanced stages and this is one reason why older people have been dying from COVID-19 because it gives us an amazingly severe um, immune response but with obesity you have an inflammatory a constant inflammatory response to most things so it's you know there's an inflammation going on all the time in relation to even very minor irritants and so COVID-19 on top of that suddenly creates a Um, a a very hard and very critical situation it's no surprise that people who are obese have been dying of COVID-19 because there's a a very very clear and strong relationship they're finding out a lot more I find the interesting thing is that uh, since COVID-19 there's been like I don't know, years and years of viral research into viruses has been condensed into just a few months. Absolutely astonishing how quick the work has been done and how much is understood even just in a short period of time. So I feel encouraged by the whole thing um, because I have a belief in the science and I have a belief in the scientists and uh, there's a lot of good science being done. And uh, you know we can see those we can see those relationships emerge and understand why obesity has become a sort of underlying underlying factor to uh, to COVID nineteen.
0: Do you think this is going to change the way that we talk about? Um, or, or let me rephrase that. Do you think this is going to change the way that we uh, talk about obesity in the more media way? I think because we know in the sciences it's very complicated, but in the media it's there's a lot of focus on, um, you know, the individual being in charge of fixing their own self. Um, but this kind of challenges that even more.
1: Yeah. Well, I think if COVID is here to stay and it might be, then we have to think about it differently. And the media is not going to let it go. And is going to look for, for new ways of thinking about it. So so I can see see, yes, it's going to emerge. The, the relationship between obesity and an infectious disease hasn't been so strongly demonstrated as it has now, and it, it's clearly a risk factor, and it's clearly something that's carrying on increasing. I looked at the childhood obesity rates uh, for the U.K. They've just been, the latest ones have just been released, and I looked at the trends since 2007, really, when the UBVO set was set up and uh, the obesity rates in children once they start school actually start going up whilst before they go to school they're you know have been you know have been declining and uh, the inequality in of childhood obesity rates in the in the childhood chart- in the early school years um, have only gotten bigger there's more inequality in obesity rates that's in the uk in the us i don't know about the latest data but there's certainly similar patterns of inequality in childhood obesity so i think the debate will get back to that it can't not uh, because um, uh, childhood obesity has been identified as something that needs particular attention i think especially since you know the uk prime minister came down with COVID 19 and it's no secret to say that his body mass index at that time was 36 which is clinically obese and uh, it's given given him pause for thought. He mm-hmm. certainly didn't want to die, and uh, he didn't die uh, because of uh, dedicated medical staff, but his body mass certainly contributed to this extreme condition that he found himself in.
0: Right. Well, I think a, a potential, like a really positive thing that could come out of this is more attention given to Inequality and um, preventing obesity and, and cr- chronic disease.
1: Absolutely, and and also, you know, while you know, we like to think that we can control our own destiny, but there are many structural things that stop us controlling our own destiny. Ways of being able to de stress life. I think that's one thing that COVID nineteen has done for a lot. Long- Quite a lot of people is there might have been extended periods of boredom and insecurity, but it's also, in for some, it's brought families together. It's brought parents together with children because they've had the time to be able to uh, to to spend with their children. So there, are, I think there are positives that could could take us into the future.
0: Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how that all unfolds. So one of the other themes that came up. Uh, was the impact of COVID-19 on food systems. And most recently, Amy McLennan talked about this in regards to the meat industry. Um, But have you had any thoughts on this during the course of the interviews?
1: Well, the food system is to my mind less of a system than an ecology. It's really Mm -hmm. complex. Nobody controls it. No government controls it. The corporations don't control it. They may control their production lines, governments may impose different kinds of taxes on different kinds of foods, but all of these things are kind of tinkering around the edges. So when something as disruptive as COVID-19 happens, when borders are closed, when um, the, the movement of goods is uh, is threatened, then it, it threatens that ecology, it changes it in unpredictable ways. And because there's artificial intelligence involved in predicting what people will be buying on the basis of what they bought before there's an, you know, an awful lot of disruption just because of the um, computing that's involved in ensuring that food arrives on the supermarket shelves at a time when you want it huge disruption simply because of everybody's patterns of buying have changed so it's not just about what's being produced how it can get to a place but but it's also about how um, the systems of delivery are being regulated. And uh, you can't leave it all to artificial intelligence because at the end of the day, you know, if in one place people buy up all the tin tomatoes and pasta, then suddenly the algorithm for supplying that supermarket, not just the um, uh, tin tomatoes and pasta, is completely disrupted. And so suddenly people find themselves with... Um, a thousand giant avocados on the shelf which is something i actually saw in one, one supermarket most of the veggies had gone but they had masses and masses of giant avocados it really seemed bizarre what seemed to be on the shelf and what wasn't it wasn't like the supermarkets responding to to the demand for pasta by finding new suppliers new distributors and all the rest of it and all of that happened of course but you know some things just arrived in great quantities and and, and they didn't know what to do with it. And then weeks later, you found, um, I found, foods that had been past their sell-by dates or approaching their sell-by date, suddenly having price reductions. So suddenly there was a lot of cost cutting happening at um, you know weeks into it because what was being supplied to to, to supermarkets wasn't really what people wanted to buy. So it, it it's been a very strange kind of. Observation of how the how the uh, food system responds when it stops being this machine that seems to tick over quite gently without too many major disruptions. Usually, the disruptions in supply are things like uh, let's go with avocados. The avocado supply in South Africa has dried up because of uh, because of uh, something related to to, to, to seasonal weather, uh, and so you buy avocados from Argentina. So they'll shift in supplying from one place to another. That can work when, there isn't, when the disruption is a local one, and most disruptions to the food system are usually extremely local on a, on a global level. That is, if there's not very much being produced in one place, there's production in another place. But COVID-19 has just hit the whole planet. Mm. So there's not been the possibility of adjusting. So the algorithms that are being used really are not fit for this particular purpose they're not fit for a a catastrophic response if you will so to to me that's really interesting will the food system recover of course it will Um, i guess one thing that might be programmed in is how to respond to catastrophic events so i can see there'll be a lot of code being written to try to work out ways of identifying catastrophic events and then responding to them. That could have a good purpose beyond supplying supermarket chains. It could have a good purpose because it could predict catastrophes. And that in itself could be another element of early warning towards famine, for example, early warning to food, food shortages in particular places. That could have a very real uh, global purpose. And it would emerge from the, the, the supply chain algorithms that are being that are being used at the moment.
0: Yeah, this artificial intelligence piece is, is very fascinating to me, and I'm really looking forward to reading more about this and how that changes as as time goes on. I think we maybe need to find someone who does this and interview them.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think so, absolutely.
0: <laughs> um, well, in the interest of keeping all of our our talks quite short, is there anything else that you you wanted to talk about, Stanley, or...? <laughs> or things that came up, final words?
1: Final word? I'd just say, well, it's a, it's a um, the global pandemic, but it's hit different countries differently. And uh, um, although, there's, as you say, there's some very interesting common themes. Humans are humans wherever they are. Um, but, you know, what's happened in Italy has been in some ways very different to what's happened in the US and the UK, Lebanon and so on. So, you know, as ever, you know, there are universals to this but also some very interesting um, local differences in how people have responded to to COVID-19. Have we learned something? We've learned a lot. Um, Will we be better people in better societies? Will our food provisioning improve? I certainly hope so. (laughs) It's,
0: It's the hope that keeps us going. Absolutely. On the Table is a personal production of Dr. Tess and Professor Stanley Ulyajak, who are anthropologists of food and nutrition and of household uncertainty and insecurity. The opinions and ideas expressed are solely those of the contributors and podcasters and do not reflect the opinions of any university body. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for tuning in.